Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Bill, what would you say to those Americans who think that the FBI is a political organization serving the partisan interests of one party or another? I was there for 21 years, and on not one occasion can I remember somebody's political affiliation coming up in a conversation. So when you use the words counterintelligence threat, what do you mean? At its core, I think of counterintelligence being about nation states jockeying or jostling for influence and power in the world. And it really runs the gamut of what those activities can be. It can include things like espionage, but it can also include things like economic espionage or malign influence. We have a huge bullseye on our back. And if we think for a second that governments in China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, that they wake up in the morning and think, isn't it terrific that the U.S. is so prosperous and is the sole superpower? At least in my experience, that is not what they wake up doing. They wake up trying to say, what can they do to take advantage of or undermine us? We have foreign nations gunning for us in our role in the world every minute of every day. You've argued, Bill, that as a society, that we have tended to underestimate the counterintelligence threat as, say, compared to terrorism. When someone suffers from an act of violence, there's immediate negative impact. Yet when somebody suffers from a counterintelligence threat, let's say a foreign adversary steals cutting-edge technology from a U.S. company today, that U.S. company doesn't feel immediate impact. And I'm just not convinced that enough people in American society have admitted or acknowledged that we have a grave problem on our hands in regards to the the nation state or the counterintelligence threat. There's certainly more that can be done. Bill Pristop is the former assistant director of counterintelligence at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He is also the former special agent in charge of the counterintelligence division at the Bureau's New York field office. During his two-decade career at the Bureau, Bill, among other things, also worked on counterterrorism cases in Chicago and in New York. Bill and I just sat down to discuss his career, as well as the growing counterintelligence threat we face as a nation. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, 
And this is Intelligence Matters. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Bill, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to see you and it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me on. I think this is a very important episode because we're going to talk about a, a topic about which many people don't have a good understanding, and it's an important topic, and it's the counterintelligence threat to our country. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a few questions about your background and about your career, okay? Okay. You spent 21 years at the FBI. How did you end up there? Actually, Michael, um, before I answer that, if I may, for your listeners, I, I just want them to know that you know as much about, or actually, you know more about national security than anybody I've ever met. And so it's a real pleasure to be here today and talking to you. Well, thanks. I would challenge your predicate about no, me knowing more, no. but it's great to have you here. Um, how did I end up at the at the FBI. I wish I could say I was one of those young people who knew exactly what they wanted to do when they grew up. Uh, I was not one of those kids. Um, instead, the only thing I knew for certain is that I love sports, but I Where'd actually... Where'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Michigan. Okay, you're not a Michigan fan, are you? I am. Oh, no, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an Ohio State fan. This is never oh. going to work. <laughs> <laughs> now, that I did not know about you, Michael. I, <laughs> I question my judgment in getting on here. Um, but the, the long and short of it is uh, I wasn't a particularly good athlete, but I, again, I, I so love sports. So what did I do after graduating from college? I went into coaching. And I was a high school and college football coach. Um, that said, I also wasn't sure that I wanted to spend the rest of my working life in sports. And so I also went back to school and I earned a law degree and a master's in business. In effect, I was just trying to keep my, my options open. And it was actually, um, I was at the University of Michigan with the football program when oh, this, is, this, is getting, <laughs> this is getting worse, actually. <laughs> when I met an FBI agent, and the FBI agent absolutely loved his job. And it basically um, enticed me to start looking into the FBI. And the more I looked into it, the more I intrigued, the more intrigued I became of it. And um, the other thing I did is I went to the, the head football coach at the time. It was a man by the name of Lloyd Carr. And I let him know that I was having some second thoughts about making a career in the, the field of athletics. And to my surprise, he encouraged me to pursue the FBI. Um, and I thank him for that uh, uh, to this day. The only thing I'll, I'll say, though, is that the year after I left Michigan, they won the national championship in football. <laughs> and so I never got to be a part of that national championship uh, effort. But in the end, I, I think it all, all worked out for me. Can you walk us, Bill, through your career? 
your initial training, the different issues on which you worked, the responsibilities you had as an officer, as, as an agent, I guess, is what you guys would call it. Sure. So let me start with, with training. I, like uh, all FBI agents, began my career at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. And um, what do they do there? They teach you how to, how to be an agent. And so I learned um, all kinds of things from a variety of investigative techniques, um, how to interview and interrogate people, how to drive fast and safely, how to shoot a gun, um, how to collect evidence, um, so on and so forth, a whole variety of things. I found the environment just really, really stimulating. Um, I love to learn, and I was being exposed to things that um, I had no experience in. Um, it's also a pretty secluded place, and they keep you really busy, and so you're able to really focus on on why you're there. And again, just by and large, it was a wonderful learning experience uh, for me. I want to make clear, I didn't find it fun at the time, <laughs> um, but when I look back on it, it was I, I find it extremely, extremely valuable. So your early assignments. Yep. So I guess I'd, I'd basically break my career into thirds. And the first third of my career was spent on what a lot of people think as the traditional FBI um, investigation. So for me, that was, you know, violent crime and organized crime matters. And uh, my first office was Chicago. And that was a wonderful experience uh, as well in that I got exposed to a side of society, if you think of it as the underbelly of society. That, um, that I hadn't really been exposed to thus far. And so I, I learned an awful lot. Um, Were you there with Congressman Mike Rogers? I was not. He was there just before okay. me. But interestingly, he's from my hometown. And so I've, I've, I've known him for years and a uh, wonderful man. Yeah, absolutely. After 9-11, um, I was moved over to counterterrorism along with many, many other FBI personnel and so the middle third of my career was primarily spent working al-Qaeda issues. Um, from Chicago, I had gone to FBI headquarters and then uh, on up to New York City, where, again, I worked those counterterrorism matters. Um, my first managerial role there, I actually had what they call a task force squad. And so um, it was about, well, I won't get into the numbers, but it, it uh, it included people from 20-plus different federal, state, and local organizations. Was this the Joint Terrorism Task Force? Yeah. So I, I had one of the squads okay. on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. and um, But what it really taught me, it, it's hard enough to manage and affect your own people, your own organization's people. But, boy, when you're having to be responsible for people from a lot of different organizations, let's just say it was a steep learning curve. But, uh, again, another Great, challenging experience that I look back on uh, very fondly. And then the last third of my career is when I got into the, the counterintelligence field. And I spent um, my years working that topic both in New York City and in Washington, D.C. So, Bill, how tough is it to get a job at the Bureau? Are there many more applicants than there are positions? How difficult? Too tough because I got in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least, you know, I don't know exactly what the what the numbers are. Um, but in things I've read, it, it, I've read that somewhere between like five and six percent of applicants end up getting accepted. So the long and short of it is there's a lot more applicants 
that apply to the organization then actually get get accepted. And what makes an applicant stand out? What's the difference between a successful applicant and one that's not successful? No, I thank you for asking that because I'm asked that by a variety of young people today who are interested in the organization. And the first thing I tell them is that they have to excel in whatever it is they're doing. So the FBI wants to attract people from all walks of life. So it isn't that that there's one career or background prior to joining the FBI you know, that, that, that the FBI is looking for, for people or applicants to have. So again, whatever you choose to do, please do it well. But then secondly, if you have a skill that a lot of other people don't have, you become even more valuable. So sometimes that's speaking a language in which, again, maybe not a lot of others have. Um, today, of course, um, a lot of the computer skills mm. that um, – that a lot of the young people are developing are, are so in demand, but that includes in demand from organizations like the FBI. Because of cybercrime. You know, ab- ab- absolutely. But again, so that sometimes they're after specific uh, and unique skills, and that can, you know, can be a mathematical skill or scientific skill. It can be a whole, whole variety of things. Um, but the other thing that the FBI is always looking for in, in applicants is – a track record of exercising sound judgment. And I can remember applying and dealing with the FBI's applicant coordinator. And she, she was assuring me, you know, that, hey, if the FBI only hired perfect people, they wouldn't exist. In other words, there aren't any perfect people. Um, but by and large, have you exercised sound judgment, you know, through, through your lifetime in effect? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've, if, if you've done that... Um, well, you're, you're, you're going to be of interest. Bill, what would you want people to know about the men and women who work at the FBI? Well, obviously, I'm, I'm no longer a part of the organization, but I, I can still say I'm, I'm immensely proud to have had the opportunity to work with the men and women at the FBI that I worked with. Some of the smartest people that I, that I have, that have ever come across worked at the FBI and helped me on, on countless matters. Um, I like to think of, of, of my cohorts at the FBI. They're the type of people like you'd want as a friend. They're, they're smart. They're trustworthy. Um, they're hardworking. They're, and probably most importantly, they're absolutely dedicated to upholding the FBI's mission, which is to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. Bill, what would you say to those Americans who think that the FBI is a political organization serving the partisan interests of one party or another? Michael, I would just tell them that 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 was not my experience. I was there for 21 years, and on not one occasion... Can I remember somebody's political affiliation coming up in a conversation? People don't ask about others' political affiliation, and people don't advertise what their political affiliation is. Um, and I, I, I'd also emphasize that I, FBI employees take extremely seriously the obligation to be objective collectors of facts with the key word or one of the key words in that of course meaning objective and if 
if your coworkers ever think you're not being objective on a man uh, in a given investigation operation, what have you, they will call you out in a millisecond. The the, the culture just is not going to tolerate partisanship. Period. Okay, Bill. Let's spend the rest of our time talking about the counterintelligence threat. So when you use the words counterintelligence threat, what do you mean? What I mean or think of is certain foreign nations' efforts to take advantage of or undermine the U.S. in primarily through intelligence or intelligence-like activities. At its core, I think of counterintelligence being about nation-states jockeying or jostling for influence and power in the world. And so if you think of it as a, just kind of an ongoing, never-ending competition amongst nations, certain nations are doing a variety of things to try to get a leg up on, on other nations. And it really runs the gamut of what those activities can be. Um, it, it can include things like es- espionage, but it can also include things like economic espionage or malign influence. Um, It's really a whole gamut of activities. So, Bill, I've heard you say that the counterintelligence threat has evolved significantly over time. Walk us through that. What was it historically? What is it now? And why has that evolution occurred? Sure. So let me start, I guess, with what a lot of people refer to as the traditional counterintelligence threat. Um, And a lot of people think of that as meaning, in effect, spy versus spies. One nation spies trying to get advantage over a nation and um, obviously the the, uh, opposite going on as well. Well, what foreign nations intelligence services or spies are after are the non-public intentions plans and capabilities of the government that they're focused on. And what they figure is if they can get those non-public intentions, plans, and capabilities and share them with their government, their government will have a leg up on our government on the world stage. Um, Well, that threat hasn't gone away, and I'd argue it's as prevalent today as it's ever been in in our nation's history. But what has happened is foreign nations have decided that, hey, for us to get the advantages that we want over the U.S., we just can't rely on our spies and our trained intelligence services and the people they recruit. We've got to engage in a whole variety of other activities with a whole variety of other people um, to achieve a whole variety of other objectives. So let me real quickly start with the objectives. If, if in the past on the traditional threat, it was about obtaining our state secrets. Well, today, the goal is, to, again, to gain advantage in any way possible. So certainly in a military sense, a diplomatic sense, but also an economic sense, a technological sense, a scientific sense, an information space sense, in some cases, even an academic sense. So the objectives of the adversary have greatly expanded. Well, because the objectives have expanded, The people the nation states utilize has expanded in kind. And so instead of just using spies and the people they recruit, today our adversaries are using people from all walks of life, 
businessmen and attorneys, scientists, professors, students, journalists, you name it, whoever might be able to get access to the things the foreign nations want. And then those, that broad range of people are engaging in a far broader range of activities than, again, just trying to obtain our state secrets. And so it's not just traditional espionage that they're engaging in. They're engaging in economic espionage and proliferation activities and, and malign influence activities and so on and so forth. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So, Bill, who are the primary adversaries in this space to the extent that you can talk about it? Sure. And so I, I agree with what the last uh, couple of DNIs have kind of termed the big four, which is uh, China, Russia, Iran, and, and North Korea. Again, they're not the only adversaries, but to me, they're the, they're the big ones. And how has that changed over time? Oh, I, I, I think it's changed uh, and, it, and it will continue to change over time. And if you just think back to the the Cold War. Now, obviously, I, I was not in government government then, but it was my understanding that an inordinate amount of the United States intelligence community resources at that time were focused on the Soviet Union, um, where today, frankly, we don't have the benefit of being able to fo- uh, to utilize an inordinate amount of our resources focused on one country. Yeah. So instead, we're focused on a, a variety of countries. So you mentioned Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. Is one of those more worrisome than the other? Is one of those more effective than the other? How do you think about that? Um, so I, I guess I think about it about it this way. They're all really wor- worrisome, but they are worrisome differently, differently because they, they excel and focus in different, in different manners. And just one kind of an, a, a side example, but North Korea, what I've been reading of late, they've really become like expert but new age bank robbers mm. uh, targeting financial institutions um, to obtain, in effect, monies um, and at least some media reports say to advance some of their weapon systems. A lot of ransomware. Yes, and, cyber attacks and like and like uh, activities. But as a result, it's an area the North Korean government has decided to focus, and they've gotten particularly good at it. Where others might focus more in different areas, and they get they get very darn good in, in the areas they're focusing. But they're all. Please make no mistake; they are all worrisome to me. Bill, I'd love to have you give us a couple of specific examples of the threats we've been talking about. And I know that you can only talk about cases that have been made public through indictment or prosecution. And maybe we could break those examples down into the traditional threat that you talked about and then maybe the new threat or non-traditional threat. Maybe the first traditional would China's hacking of the Office of Personnel Management database fall into that 
category? So, so yes. Um, and it's my understanding that um, some government officials have alluded to the fact that it's China and the Chinese state uh, apparatus behind, behind that attack. Um, but so if, if, if we assume that's the case, you have a, a state actor engaging in an operation, certainly in my mind, to obtain state secrets. Now, in this case, it's not the intentions, plans, and capabilities of the, of the U.S. government, but it's, it, it was information, personal background information about, I've seen some estimates, tens of millions of, of U.S. government employees. And so, obviously, that would provide whomever obtained that information an awful lot of insight into U.S. government uh, workers, and I'd argue those are state secrets. So, Michael, to answer your question, that absolutely is an example of what I refer to as the traditional counterintelligence. There's also been, been, I think, three recent arrests of U.S. citizens for spying for China, including a CIA officer. And it seems almost that that's becoming more frequent than, than our arrests and prosecutions of people spying for Russia seems the Chinese are being very aggressive in that area. Is that your sense? I guess I'd, I'd, I think of it this way, that they're, they're certainly getting more aggressive in that area. And, and that, the, the examples you, you uh, just mentioned, um, that, that is kind of the textbook definition of the traditional counterintelligence threat, meaning uh, state intelligence services trying to recruit Americans to provide state secrets to a foreign nation. So, Bill, some examples of the non-traditional. I've heard you talk about a couple of them over the years, and I was hoping you could you could share a bit about the charges. Number one, the charges brought against Iranians in March of 2018 for widespread a widespread hacking campaign. Yes. So, um, the Department of Justice indicted, if I recall correctly, I think it was around nine. Iranian citizens who were affiliated with a, a company based in, in Iran. And what these individuals uh, allegedly did, they engaged in a, a long, at least months long, if not a couple years long, cyber hacking campaign. And they targeted how it was upwards of 100 plus U.S. universities a hundred plus uh, universities in in tens of foreign countries. I want to say, and please don't hold me to these numbers, but it, it was something like um, forty U.S. and foreign private sector, I mean corporations. They targeted as well. They targeted the United Nations. They targeted the Department of Labor. If I recall correctly, they targeted um, government databases of two U.S. states. I mean, just wide-ranging cyber targeting. And uh, there was one estimate I read that they obtained, I think it was just from the universities alone, over 31 terabytes Mm. uh, uh, of information that they obtained from the universities to include, as you can imagine, gobs of uh, intellectual property, sensitive research that those those universities were working on. it's my understanding that some of the hacking was done uh, on behalf of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, 
but that not all of that hacking was done for that. And so to me, it's a it's almost a, a, a perfect uh, hybrid example of both the traditional and non-traditional counterintelligence threat. And then there was a January 2019 multiple charges against Huawei. Sure. Um, and once again, Department of Justice uh, announced an indictment in, in and I know it was early 2019 against Huawei. Um, I, I don't believe, again, either this case or in the Rainy example, those cases have been adjudicated. And so, again, all these, uh, all the information in the indictment at, at this time is, is simply allegations. But it's my understanding that at least one of the indictments involving Huawei uh, charged Huawei with, with, I think it was theft of trade secret conspiracy, among other things. And basically, it appears that Huawei was trying to obtain uh, trade secrets from T-Mobile USA. And it's actually a fascinating case. I read the indictment I, um, when, it, when it came out. And it appears that T-Mobile had this robot that basically tested cell phones uh, and helped improve cell phones before cell phones uh, would be would be sold to the public. And basically, the the robot would detect um, problems with the cell phone, so they could be corrected, so that when the phone was sold, it was a it was a better product. And then T-Mobile didn't have as many phones returned mm-hmm. to it, and of course, saved a lot of money because fewer customers were returning defective phones. So the bottom line is that this robot was really valuable technology to T-Mobile. Well, Huawei, Huawei's a Chinese company. It's the largest telecommunications equipment maker in the world. One of the things it does, it, it makes cell phones. So they wanted the, basically the phone testing robot as well. So they first tried to legitimately obtain it. They tried to buy it from T-Mobile. T-Mobile wouldn't sell it to them. They then tried to lease it from T-Mobile. T-Mobile wouldn't lease it. Once they knew they couldn't legitimately obtain the technology behind the robot, they engaged in a months-long campaign to steal whatever information they could about the robot because they wanted to recreate it in China for their use. Um, they had some access to T-Mobile USA's lab, at least according to the, to the indictment. And so they would surreptitiously take measurements of it, take photographs, send it back to China. But at the end... They, they, they still couldn't obtain everything they wanted about this robot. And so what a, a Huawei employee did is he truly broke off an arm of the robot. And this robot was located in T-Mobile's lab. He breaks off the arm, puts it into his bag, and leaves. T-Mobile, of course, learned about it a couple hours later. The arm was missing. but they And, and confronted the, the employee. But by that time... He'd gotten it back to wherever he was staying, taking photographs of it, taking measurements of it, sent all that stuff back to uh, to China. But again, just the the aggressive, brazen, relentless nature of the of the threat of the th- theft is concerning. So, Bill, you see the counterintelligence threat as very serious, as a very serious threat to our nation. I do. Why? I guess it all comes down to. I see foreign nations chipping away at the United States on a regular basis. And let me start with saying that 
I can't quantify the cost to the U.S. associated with this threat. But economic espionage alone, and please keep in mind that economic espionage is just a piece of the overall threat. I've seen U.S. governments that say that economic espionage alone costs the U.S. hundreds of billions of dollars. Well, if you annually, annually, I'm sorry, annually. Annually, So if you add economic espionage with all the other things that are going on, again, an incalculable damage to the U.S. And what I what I I guess I, I hope your listeners will keep in mind is that since 1991, the U, which was when the, the Soviet Union fell, the U.S. has been the sole superpower on the face of the earth. What I'm trying to get at there is we have a huge bullseye on our back. And if we think for a second that governments like like governments in China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, that they wake up in the morning and think, isn't it terrific that the U.S. is so prosperous and is the sole superpower? Well, at least in my experience, that is not what they wake up doing. They wake up trying to say, what can they do to take advantage of or undermine us? What I'm trying to, again, say is we have foreign nations gunning for us in our role, role in the world every minute of every day. You've argued, Bill, that as a society that we have tended to underestimate the counterintelligence threat as, say, compared to terrorism. Why? Yes, and I, 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 believe, I believe we do continue to underestimate it. Um, in my mind, it's because of two main reasons, and it's because, because the threat is nonviolent, usually, and gradual in nature. Um, and let me start with nonviolent. Whether it's terrorism or gun violence, but when we as human beings, in effect, see blood in the streets, see the victims of those activities, as human beings, we have a visceral reaction to that and want to do everything in our power to ensure it doesn't, it doesn't happen again. For whatever reason, because counterintelligence, again, isn't isn't a violent threat usually. When we hear about it, whether it's an espionage or economic espionage or, again, malign influence, there just isn't that same human reaction, that outcry that, boy, we must, we must uh, prevent you know, these type of things from ever happening again. Um, and related to that is, again, the gradual nature of it. When someone suffers from a, an act of violence, there's immediate negative impact. Yet when somebody suffers from a counterintelligence threat, let's say a foreign adversary steals cutting edge technology from a U.S. company today, that U.S. company doesn't feel immediate impact. And it's because the information stolen has to be taken back to a foreign nation. It has to be studied. It has to be understood. And only then can it be utilized, and it has to be utilized slowly, kind of over time. So even if it's used to compete in the open market with the U.S. company it was stolen from, it doesn't immediately cut into that U.S. company's profits. But it doesn't mean long term that it can't cut into those profits in a major, major way. But the long and short of it is the immediacy of impact is is not felt. It's a very, very gradual threat. So, Bill, does this does this mean that we, both as a government and as a private sector, underinvest 
in what we need to do to protect ourselves against the counterintelligence threat? Well, I, I certainly think we can do more. Um, and, and that would include spending more. But I, I believe it all begins with, and I often think of this as, as like a, an addict, meaning like how they how an addict needs to recover, and whether it's alcohol, drugs, and you name it. But from what I've read, for an addict to begin to recover, they have to first admit that they have a problem. And I'm just not convinced that enough people in American society have admitted or acknowledged that we have a grave problem on our hands in regards to the the nation state or the counterintelligence threat. But to me, it it begins with acknowledging that fact. Do you you think there's enough knowledge of it within the U.S. government? I think that— Clearly at the FBI and CIA and the intelligence community, people get what you're saying. I I think, Michael, that there's more acknowledgement of the gravity of the threat than at any time that I saw in my career. So we're absolutely going in the right direction. What about in Congress? In Congress, absolute um, acknowledgement. What about the private sector? Um, far greater awareness in my experience than there was previously, but still not to the level that that it needs to be. So um, think of if the larger, the more sophisticated, more complex an organization it is, the greater their understanding. But I worry there's so much innovation coming out of smaller companies, more startup, new new companies. And to me, they're not, many of them are not as, as knowledgeable, or if they are knowledgeable about it, they're not doing things to take in the, the threat into account. And do you think that the government has a responsibility to help educate the private sector? Absolutely. And I know a lot of government components or organizations are, are already doing that, but there's certainly more that can be done. In fact, Bill Evanina's group at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence is actually very aggressive at this. Is, Bill's a FBI agent. Yep, it is exactly one of the organizations that's doing everything it possibly can to get the word out. And Bill, if you were in an auditorium with a group of CEOs and you were talking to them about this, what would you say to them? In terms of, clearly you would talk to them about the threat and the threat to them, right? But what would you tell them they need to do about it? How would you help them think about that? I I guess... First, I'd let them know that this isn't that this threat isn't uh, some flash in the pan. In other words, this is a new normal that's going to exist for for decades and decades. I mean, the, the threat isn't going away, um, and if anything, it's it's likely to only get worse. So, first and foremost, they've got to take that into account. Secondly, and this might it's easy for me to sit here because I'm, I'm not in the, and say this because I'm not in their shoes, but especially for the big public organizations, you know, that have all the quarterly earnings reports and whatnot, I would try to impress upon them that our competitors, our nation state competitors, and some of the companies that they're competing with that receive support from, from the foreign governments, they are making long-term, long-range decisions to try to position their companies for that, that, that longer-term success. So I try to convince our executives that as much as possible, while still trying to abide by all the things they have to do with quarterly reports and earnings and, and whatnot, to, to, to really try to plan for 
and position their organizations for long-term success so that their organizations can continue to succeed even when the CEOs are no longer affiliated. In other words, they've retired with the companies. What about college presidents? A little bit of a tougher audience in talking to them about the counterintelligence threat? Yeah, and I'm really glad you you asked this because I've had um, a number of questions with with people in academia about this very topic. And there's an esteemed academic, actually he's retired from academia now, but he was a good friend of mine. And he told me a long time ago, but his words stick in my, really stick in my head. And he said, Bill, academics, their, their, their ethos is to share knowledge for the good of mankind. And so when you're trying to tell them that maybe they shouldn't do that, that can be very, very difficult for them to accept. Well, first, I want to say that people in academia, in my opinion, they have as worthy a, a profession as there is. I mean, again, think of the, the ethos of, of trying to improve mankind through the, the sharing of knowledge. But what I'd want them to know is that some of the people they're sharing knowledge with are not using what they're learning for the good of mankind, even if they tell you that they're going to use it for the good of mankind. And what I'm talking about is when somebody might take knowledge and utilize it to repress their own people or take given research to improve their military and other intelligence capabilities. Um, So again, I, I love what academics are in business to do, but but not everybody approaches it, in my experience, in such a pure way. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Bill Pristop. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.